So now he's villain coded, and every show you see him in after this, you will suspect him even if he's the protagonist, is what you're telling me. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show's Righteous Kicks, the podcast where two science fiction writers geek out about men in spandex bodysuits who kick evildoers to death in abandoned quarries until they explode. Today we're going to kick an evildoer to death in the school gymnasium. I'm Brandon. And I'm Iori. And today we have a lot of feelings about Kamen Rider Forze, uh, which we finally watched the final third of episodes for, episodes 33 to 48. And a lot has happened. We've learned some things about some characters. We've been double-crossed and triple-crossed. Gen continues to be a heartthrob. And we save the world with the power of friendship and also space. But first, field trip. Field trip. Because of course we need a field trip, right? Which, like, when it happened, I'm like, this is definitely happening. I don't know why it took so long for us to have the field trip episode. But in episode 33, we take a trip to Kyoto, which is unexplained. Nobody knows why it's an urgent field trip, or why it's space-related, or why the teachers are allowed to just give students free reign to make their own itineraries and just move by themselves, which I imagine is a specific cultural thing. That's not that super unusual. Really? There is the line of thinking that, well, if we put them in groups, there's a limit to how much trouble they can get in. And then there's also that whole, you will bring shame upon the whole school if you fuck this up. Okay, fair enough. I'm I'm accustomed to chaperones myself, but uh, understood. The thing that's weird about it in this specific context, actually, is that AGHS students don't have a uniform, per se. When you're on a field trip... You are in uniform the whole time so that if you act out in any way, people know exactly which school is bad. So there's Uh a lot of social pressure that keeps people reasonably well behaved. Right. Yes, you make a good point. So I, I can see why it would be difficult then for one group to be made up of the one person in in year three who refuses to wear the official uniform and somebody who is not even from the school makes it very easy to just deny responsibility for a lot of the weird things that happen in Kyoto as a result because they get into a lot of trouble which is partly emphasized by Yukina (sighs) so in this field trip the regular group is joined by one classmate uh, named Yukina, who is very insistent upon having the very best field trip ever, and specifically on having that experience with Gentaro, because of course Gentaro just draws all of the girls in Amanagawa Gakuen toward him without ever wanting to or knowing how or why. And that becomes very weird in a way that is immediately hostile for everyone else involved, because Yukina is very insistent. That's a word. Don't trust anyone who threatens Hayabusa. Right! Like, she kidnapped Yuki's toy doll and, like, threatens it so she could get close to Gen, and I'm like, this is not very strange. This is peculiar. It is an extreme level of uncool. Yeah, but also... There's a level of commitment, nay, obsession, that 
canonly be described as your friend's attempt to prevent someone from getting into your personal space by literally throwing caltrops at the floor. Like, real caltrops. Like, where do you buy that? Yeah, it was a really good bonding moment. Which is, like, one of the things that you notice immediately leading out of episode 32, which we would have covered in the last episode of Righteous Kicks that we recorded, which is Ryusei has been through a lot. Ryusei literally killed someone just, like, days before this field trip and has grown a great deal since... So, like, seeing Meteor actually, like, develop a level of camaraderie, even a level of responsibility towards Gen, was actually very heartwarming. But the fact that it needed to be established by trying to prevent a girl from getting close to him was also very weird. That Egamura scene, though, when they get dressed up in the period costumes, I would just like to say, dang, Ryusei, because I am a sucker for anybody in a Tateiboshi. He does look very, like, dapper in that entire costume, though. He looks like, like, I very much expected at that moment for, uh, because they're playing up that entire scene, that we're going into period costume, so we're going to perform to period. And I very much expected Ryusei to, like, commit to that. And there is a moment when he speaks that that's, like, deliberately what's happening. Like, he is fully in character. They did speak in grammatically accurate archaic dialects and the fun thing is they were dressed in costumes from different periods and they were observing period accurate speech conventions for their individual costumes which just set off fireworks of joy in my heart i knew that you would like that like that historical japanese experience would be really cool but while all of that is happening, two other things are happening, which is we get the first the first and only mention in Kamen Rider Forze of Foundation X, the clandestine organization that was funding Gamo's research into Astro Switches, who attempt to have a stern conversation with him in the school car park and then are assaulted by the Leo Zodiacs, which was fun. Because this is the first time that we see either Leo or Foundation X. And while it like fundamentally establishes that darker things are afoot, it also establishes that this man that we don't know is so protective of Gamo that he will just fight strangers in a car park. Just because someone uh, sternly spoke to the person that he trusts and likes this much. But also we learn the purpose of the field trip which is to cover some nefarious doings regarding both space and magic. Which I guess you will have to tell me more about, because I know nothing about Onmyodo. To be honest, the field trip feels a little contrived, because you can just get on the bullet train and go to Kyoto. If I was the villain of this show, I would have gotten on the train on a weekend, gone to Kyoto, destroyed all these artifacts... And the children would never have had to be involved, and Forze would not have been able to stop me. Ah, but that's the thing, right? So the lore in Kamen Rider Forze is kind of weird and bad, but also kind of endearing and neat. In that there is this spatial anomaly called The Hole. It's just called The Hole. It's not a black hole. It's not dark matter, some shit. It's just 
the whole. And there is a whole over Kyoto. And there is a whole over Manogawa Gakuen. Gamo wants very much to con- to concentrate all of that cosmic energy over the school. So he wants to go to Kyoto and get rid of that hole. But it requires unearthing the artifacts by revealing a, a large mass of cosmic energy within Kyoto. So the only reason the field trip existed is so Gentaro will be in Kyoto, see a Zodiac, transform into Forze, and get in a fight. Regardless of who wins or loses. So him transforming will just unearth those uh, artifacts. And he doesn't know that that's what's happening until two of those artifacts have been already broken. So this was really neat because Onmyodo is historically not just magic, but also astronomy and calendar making and weather predictions. So it's pretty reductive to only think of it as magic when it also encompasses a lot of forms of early science, which is something that Forze actually gets right by being like, yes, this is how we understood astronomy at the time, and a lot of its principles still hold true. And some of the calendar functions are still used today. For instance, Onmyodo is how we determine the six-day calendar called the Rokuyo, which essentially specifies that certain days are good for certain things, like we are recording this on a Tayan day, and that is success in all bullet endeavors, and this is the best day to go buy a lotto ticket. Now, audience, don't go do that, because I don't know what day you're listening to this on, and it might be a Butsumetsu day when Buddha died, and you shouldn't do anything on those days. Stay home on a Butsumetsu day. Duly noted, I will try to get myself one of those calendars at some point. So it's very interesting that you mentioned that this is also technically scientific, because this is also the moment that we meet one of the most interesting characters in uh, uh, Kamen Rider Forze, someone who we've met already, but we'll get to that point later. Professor Emoto, who studies in Kyoto, works in Kyoto, and Kengo takes a private moment away from the field trip to go and visit him precisely because uh, he had worked with Kengo's father before Kengo's father passed. Um, and wanted to get more information about the research that they had been doing in the hopes of supporting Forze more. And that's when he not only discovers more information about the whole and about these um, four artifacts at the four cardinal points, but just more information about his father and more information about the relationship that his father had uh, with Emoto, which was remarkably warm and friendly in a way that was not consistently businesslike. And I thought that that was really cool that we get those moments to learn more about Kengo's father in ways that are not just about this is what he did and this is what he uh, meant to the work that eventually creates Forze, but this is what kind of person he was and this is why friendship as a motif in this uh, series is so important because he saw himself in much the same way that Gentaro does and Kengo finds those things out pretty much privately and never shares them with anybody which is pretty interesting for me for on a character level. So while that is happening the rest of the field trip is happening in earnest. Uh, Yukina is still being very weird. Pillars are still being broken and that's when we kind of discover that Yukina knows that Gentaro is Forze. He hasn't been exactly discreet about it. 
I mean, yes, fair, but everybody thinks that he's trying to be discreet, so everyone is still shocked. But, I mean, most of the school would know. But uh, Yukina reveals that part of the reason why she's been so weird and insistent, uh, including but not limited to pushing Gentaro out of fights while Zodiots are literally still engaging in combat right in front of her, is because she wants Gentaro to have a good time and thinks that he's been working too hard. And I'm like, okay, this is nice. This is cool. We understand. This is the part where Gentaro tells you, I appreciate that you care so much about this, but this is something that only I can do. And then you can respond by stealing the Forza driver and running away. Yeah, that was a lot. Like, B minus on the motive, F on the execution. And I mean, I get it. It's not something a teenager wouldn't do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But like, why? People's lives are at stake. Because it gets to the point where one of these Zodiacs is literally in front of Yukina. And Yuki comes to her and says, Okay, we need the switch now so people don't die. And Yukina still says no. Why? Don't do the thing, please. Your life is in danger. You don't need to do the thing. I also really enjoyed how Yukina is sprawled half into a river. Like, she's clearly going to have a little trouble getting up on her own, and Libra tells her to move. It's like, Libra, you're standing up. Walk around her. Especially since we already know who Libra is, and this is kind of a dick thing for a principal to tell a school child. Adults are evil in Forze. Just step over her. Just walk around. It's right there. We established later in that fight that he could have broken the thing at long distance. Why did you need to do all of this? Yeah. Just but yes. 30 seconds of pointless villainy. <laughs> just just being evil for being evil's sake. But then we eventually get to the point where Yukina uh, reconnects with Gentaro. And at least they make this weird promise that after this fight is over, we're taking a picture. Okay, you could have just asked for one before all of this drama happened. But I accept it. I understand the motive. Gentaro is in- indeed quite handsome. I understand why you'd be driven to such wildness over Gentaro. Well, making it conditional on the fight ending means you have to live through this one. Yeah, I mean, yes, fair. I'm- uh, but was it a what was it ever in any doubt? I mean, that raises the question: Do they know they have plot armor? Yukina probably doesn't know that. Right, Yukina probably doesn't know that. But I think, I think Gen thinks he has plot armor. You know, mm-hmm. but it's a special kind of plot armor. It's it's the kind of plot armor where you only succeed if you try your best. So he has no problem. In that episode, uh, fighting Libra barehanded right in front of Yukina and going, If you didn't give me the belt, I'd still do this, but it would be really nice if you gave me the thing. There's this really specific distinction I want to make that Gen doesn't think he has plot armor because he's the protagonist. Gen thinks he has plot armor because he's pure of heart. (laughs) Gen thinks he has plot armor because he is not allowed to die until he makes friends. And it just so happens that that's the theme of the show. And then that field trip ends, and then we get back to school where more weirdness happens. Can I just say how much I love that Jake has a better lock on how to manage a secret identity than anybody else? Well, I mean, this this was already true by the fact that there are staff members in Jake's school who call him Jake, even though that's not his birth name. It's a nickname that he gave himself. It's a shortening of his actual name. No one ever 
learns his name. So it stands to reason that he would be perfectly capable of keeping an entirely separate alter ego. Um, especially because it's also established in that double episode with Jake and the Capricorn Zodiacs that he doesn't live with his father, but no one knows where he lives. And he has an entirely separate, presumably rented space dedicated solely to recording Milky Night Carnival, his online radio DJ show. That's not where he lives. That's not where he sleeps. He leaves that place at night. In fairness, so high school is not mandatory in Japan. You can actually quit school after middle school. Mm-hmm. And frequently, if your parents want you to go to a good university and they live way the hell out in the sticks, they might actually send you to live on your own and rent an apartment for you in the city where you have access to a better feeder school that improves your chances of getting into a top university. Aha! Uh-huh. And that would actually make cultural sense because we do establish that Jake's father, in the interim of his failed musical career, is a fisherman. Well, here's the thing that doesn't make sense, though. AGHS is essentially, I think, a fictionalization of ASIJ, the American school in Japan. And what that indicates to me, especially from the facilities that we see available at Amanagawa Gakuen, tuition here has got to be mad expensive. Oh yeah, I believe it. How are you paying for that and an apartment for your child as a fisherman? Where's Jake's mom and what does she do? Does she work in, I don't know, some super high-powered finance job? It also stands to reason that Jake makes his own money through means that we don't know, and if we learned, it would incriminate him heavily. But I highly doubt that's the case. Look, I wasn't going to say that Jake is the drug dealer friend, but he is portrayed in a way that heavily lines up with the Japanese stereotypes of what your cool drug dealer friend would be like. I don't believe that he's a drug dealer. I believe he's an information dealer. I don't know what that would mean in this world. Either that or his father literally fishes for kaiju, which is not established either, so I doubt that's the case. But Jake and his online radio show is gathering attention in school, doing unnecessarily well for what is established in the episode as just he reads uh, a couple of listener suggestions performs one song, the only song that he knows and has written, and then plays maybe another song. He's a dear prudence that sings. Fair enough. But like, I feel like that's also a cultural thing that I obviously wouldn't know unless I lived in Japan. Because I do know that there is personality radio culture in Japan that is much distinct to how like radio personalities in the US, for instance, are definitely not the same as they are in Trinidad. So I felt like that was like a distinct example of something in much the same way as it appears in other Kamen Rider series like Kamen Rider Double. So I feel like there is something about that culture that I didn't get. It didn't make it difficult for me to understand. So yeah, radio here does function a lot on listener interaction and parasociality in a way that I think a lot of modern radio in America doesn't. But I remember this stuff from when I was like 10 years old. There'd be people who form relationships with the DJs by writing in and requesting songs or asking for advice. And that's persisted in Japan in a way that I think it hasn't in other countries. 
it is endearing in the episode that the advice is from other students. Like, it's established in this brief moment that all of uh, Milky Night Carnival's listeners are students. And that they're very, like, small personal stuff that Jake had, or in this persona on this radio show, Gene has no problem, like, telling people, well, just do the thing. If you have feelings about XYZ, don't be afraid to just act on the feelings that you already have because you can trust your own judgment, which I thought was particularly interesting. Um, like that, that opening scene in that episode when uh, he tells uh, one of his listeners to pour water on their friend. And then the next morning at school, in the cafeteria, a girl just like pours water on a guy. And everybody knows what that's about. But it's not like the kind of weird esoteric kind of advice that you typically get in a Western advice column. It's just, if you have a feeling about a thing, commit to the feeling. Which ends up being the theme of the ep- the those two episodes as well, um, in very interesting and thematic ways, because then we learn that his best friend has become a Zodiac's, and that Zodiac's power is to play the guitar well. In all fairness, if it made me a better musician, yes, I'd become a Zodiac's in a heartbeat. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, I-, I dug that episode a lot in part because it's also very, like, mythologically thematic. In a way that didn't occur to me until afterwards, that Cap the Capricorn Zodiacs is the Zodiacs that has the ability to play music very well and very stirringly, and that Jake re- reconnects with his friend at a music store that is called Pan, and when everybody asks, well, where is this shop? Tomoko is the one that knows, oh, Pan is the god of music. So it stands to reason that there's a music shop named Pan, and that the Zodiac that can play music well is a goat. Which I thought was really cool, in this like very minor thematic way that just kind of like plucks my science fiction brain. And then we get to the music shop and we discover that Jake is already there, and they have already he has already reconnected with his friend. And they are rocking out. It's actually really sweet and really endearing, and then the Zodiacs thing happens, and the very first thing that his friend tells him is, well, why don't you sing and see what this looks like? Jake starts singing, discovers that his singing voice is actually really dope, and because Jake is a fickle individual who has a lot of feelings about how he's perceived, decides, yeah, I'm in, I'm in this for the long haul, even though my friend is a member of the community of people that I have grown to not trust because I have made a friend in Gentaro. Which is really interesting from a character perspective, because you'd imagine that like a lot of Gen's other friends who have joined the Kamen Rider Club, you'd imagine that Jake had gotten over the hang-up that makes it difficult for him to be Gentaro's friend. And then we discover that it emerges again, in a way that affects his ability not only to be friends with Gantaro, but his ability to remain trustworthy friends with anybody else. What I have in my notes about that was, look, we know Jake, we don't get to be surprised. Because I actually did not feel that Jake had experienced a tremendous amount of character growth. I didn't think that those that the behavior changes that we saw in his previous arc were going to stick. And something that struck me about this episode is, how often he comes close to saying something useful about parasocial relationships, but never quite gets there. And, hmm, 
this is also me bringing my own issues to the table, but I don't think that the answer to these people love my internet persona and not me is to put my real self on the internet. I think it's to have good boundaries. In the end, what Gen and Jake advocate for are put your whole self out there. Bring your authentic self to the table, regardless of context. So that didn't really land for me. I mean, it is very strange in that I do feel like that moment in the second episode where Gantaro comes on stage while JK is like giving in to this like power trip of finally becoming a rock star and Gen joins him with a guitar and starts playing his father's song and he decides I'm just going to sing and have this exper- this pure authentic bad experience. I felt like that scene was actually still very moving. But ultimately, what kind of troubles me about that entire moment is, the thing that I feel would have been valuable to learn in that moment is that what you want to do isn't bad, and wanting to do it well and wanting to be loved for doing it in that way isn't bad. You just don't have to hurt people as a result. Like, it made that point aloud, and then resolved above that point to go, well, maybe I just won't sing again. The song that you sang was dope. It was poorly performed, but buddy, you can get coaching for that. There could have been a message there about sticking to your craft and improving it, and really committing to the thing you love. Mm -hmm. And we've noticed that there are episodes in Forze where they do kind of overcommit to the lesson in these similar ways. But I felt like this one in particular would have been valuable because I feel like one of the things that you can teach young people very well from an early age is the thing that you want to do is not bad as long as you're not hurting people. And you can commit to doing that even if the road to doing that is difficult and includes like a lot of struggles with people telling you that you are bad at the thing. Um, because ultimately I would have wanted to hear that song from Jake be better. I mean, we're never going to hear it again, ultimately. So yeah, that happens. Immediately after that comes one of the things that you'd expect to happen in a very expensive high school like Amanagawa Gakuen, which is a specific test just for these children. I know schools over here have a tremendous amount of control and authority over their students, but I've never actually taught in one. So please, like, I was wondering the entire time, is it actually legal to lock children up for 72 hours? You'd imagine it isn't. They couldn't have actually been there for 72 hours because without food and water, you die. And also there was no bathroom, like... Yeah, it was, it was, it was very bad. It felt like, it felt like that was actually, like, an exaggeration that a writer hadn't thought through at that moment. Well, the thing is, a tiny bit of better set design and prop work could have actually resolved that for me really easily. Yeah. (laughs) Just slightly more attention to detail. But to properly establish these two episodes, the high school just has a space test every year. Because Amanogawa Gakuen is dedicated to preparing high schoolers for potentially being astronauts, they just have a special exam dedicated to seeing whether students 
have the capacity to be astronauts. In the lead up to that exam, Gen meets a transfer student to Amanogawa named Erin Suda. Immediately upon meeting, she asks him to kiss her because, whew, what a first impression, huh? Right. But it's not because they're attracted to each other or anything, it's because, oh, the Japanese language is so hard! So this is one of the things that I definitely wanted to talk to you about, because the language gag that is played here with Erin is just... She loses a vowel off the end of the word, that's really it. She was supposed to say chi, and she said chi instead. It's a very simple kind of malapropism that I really that I thought was really interesting, but I thought it was a really interesting decision to make for that character because it means that it's not ne- it, it's not even necessarily that the entirety of Japanese is hard for Erin. It's that there's just some words that she didn't fully learn yet, which is an interesting kind of language gag, but it doesn't really sell to me that she had difficulty learning. Especially because it rarely happens, and she can have very fervent, frustrated conversations with several characters in perfect Japanese. You'd imagine that when someone gets angry, their grasp on a second language becomes much more difficult. The thing that irritated me was that she only ever makes mistakes when they're plot-relevant, and in most other contexts, her Japanese is perfectly fine. They essentially only do it to establish her as being sufficiently foreign, and Mm -hmm. then to facilitate the reveal of her being Aquarius. Yeah. One of the things that stands out to me about Eren as a character, because I actually like Eren a lot, I like those two episodes, Um, the duel that she has with Forze at the end of that double episode is perhaps one of the genuinely most heartfelt fights in the entirety of the series. That was a gorgeous fight, but where did the rain come from? They just waited for the rain to fall because drama. And I dug that a lot. But like, one of the things that I find so striking about Eren as a character is she already has a, a great deal of development. She wants to go to, she wants to go to space and that's why all of the people who like space like her. She's a kindred spirit to Gentaro because they both have a lot of energy and a lot of drive, even though her drive is dedicated specifically to going to space. She believes that people who are all talk don't deserve to go, and as a result, she has a long-standing frustration with Yuki because she thinks that Yuki is not committed the way that she is, even though she can see that commitment in other people and is willing to lose to those people, but not to Yuki as a result. That's brilliant character development. That could feel an entire show by itself. I think where this suffered for me was that this happens so close after the Kyoto trip, and especially because these are very short episodes and I definitely saw them in the same day, that coming on the heels of Yukina... I'm really sick of girls being mean to Yuki as a way to establish them as an antagonist. Mm -hmm. So it felt like if this had been paced differently with more filler in between the two, like if the Kyoto trip had happened earlier in the series, or this had come somewhere in the front half of the series, it would have worked better for me. I liked Eren's characterization more than Yukina's in that sense, because I feel like I know why she's frustrated. But, like, people pick on Yuki a lot, and I feel like the only narrative purpose is because Yuki's characterization is established as very childish and non-confrontational, so it's very easy to pick on her. Because you can't get in a fight with Ryusei, because Ryusei will just punch you in the neck. You can't get in a fight with uh, Tomoko, because Tomoko will literally curse you. 
Miu is not even in school anymore, and if you got a fight with Miu, Miu would ruin your reputation for all time. So, like, who else is there to pick on? I guess it's Yuki. But at least Eren had reasons. Like, if it, it could have been someone else, and the reason why it is Yuki is because we've dealt with Yuki's commitment to space in this way for so long, and then learned that her childishness is not a lack of desire or... Um, some, like, character flaw of hers, but that she can be genuinely dedicated and trustworthy. And the reason, th- the way that she shows that is her childish fervor towards going to space. Like, we learn in later episodes that, like, when she was a child, she literally said that she heard Space's voice speak to her in the night. Um, and I feel like that kind of commitment, that kind of at- attachment... It's actually really neat and really worth rewarding as a character. So I kind of like that the end result of that like feud with Eren is that uh, Eren learns that Yuki is actually really worth this experience. Like, Yuki deserves to go to space. Perhaps even more so than most other people because she's willing to be mistrusted and, and judged by other people in order to do whatever she needs to do. And Eren, after having thrown (laughs) Yuki down a cliff, like, thrown her down a hill. As you do when you're a teenager. Yeah, when you're a teenager, you get in minor fights over an exam with another child and then severely uh, injure them on a, on a, a trip up a hill and break their ankle. But then... Eren goes back down uh, that hill and is willing to admit, hey, I made a mistake. Um, And we're going to settle this fair and square. Um, But she does that because she's the Aquarius Zodiac and has the ability to heal people. Which is also a lot. Because around this time we've also established that Libra has the ability to just see who's going to be a horoscope's. And has been ramping up the pursuit of those uh, horoscope switches. And the entire time, Eren was just like the Aquarius uh, Zodiacs. And the only person who knew up until the point where uh, Yuki got her ankle broken was Gantaro. And he refused to tell anybody until people's lives were at stake. Yeah, like, isn't not telling the rest of the club about the Zodiacs, I don't know, exactly what we just got on Jake's case about? Yeah, and the, it, it kind of works out because, again, they have that duel and Eren loses and that's a lot. there are a lot of feelings there. But then, instead of being doomed to the Dark Nebula like a lot of other Zodiacs have been, uh, they just wipe Eren's memory. So she gets to go back to school and have feelings. And they go right back to being like the best of friends again, even though Eren doesn't remember having met them. That was kind of sweet. I feel like that has to, somehow, come back to bite them, but it never actually gets paid off. Because at some point, someone else in this school would have to tell Aaron, oh yeah, that thing that happened last week. What do you mean last week? I wasn't even here. Yes, you completely were. There's surveillance footage. And I think a lot of interesting conflict could have come from her going back to Gen and Yuki, like, why didn't you tell me I've been here this long? Why didn't you tell me we knew each other? What are you hiding from me? Why is everyone gaslighting me? And that would have been so cool, except we had no time for it, because we had to keep going. Like, we're in the home stretch of the series. We have to get back to the big stakes. We cannot examine all the fridge horror implications of what's been going on to people. Especially because 
we're about to break these children's hearts again. Because that's when some weird Virgo things start to happen. Well, yeah, weird Virgo shit happens. But I have to say that the thing that truly broke my heart in the next two episodes was that, I mean, of course Jun knows how to golf, but I wish he knew how to dress himself when he golfed. I mean, does he know how to dress himself in general? I'm pretty sure if it weren't for Mew, he would be kind of a disaster on a regular basis. Probably, but I'm sorry, when he is trying to teach the team golfing, he's straight up dressed like a 60-year-old white man. Yeah, I feel like that was the goal, but I didn't. It was weird, and I didn't. I don't know why it happened. But while Ryuse is learning how to golf, so he can deal with... The Campus Discipline Committee! I want to know if the police state imagery that I got from that episode was purposeful. It had to be. You don't teach children to goose step by accident. Like, that's not... That's not a note that the director gives without conscious thought, right? Yeah, it was very weird and very strange. I've seen it in, like, some other pieces of media, but I'm not sure if it's, like, consistently a part of Japanese high school uniforms for student council members and other representatives to have armbands on their uniform. But I found it really weird and strange. Oh, actually, like... Everything has arm bra- armbands over here, so that's not weird. Like, your crossing guard has an armband. Construction staff have okay. armbands. Stuff like that. It's actually, in in some labor industries, it's much more common than, say, lanyard IDs or something. Because it's more visible from a distance and less likely mm-hmm. to get caught on machinery. And the conventions of labor uniforms often trickles into other industries because it's usually visually striking yet physically unobtrusive. For me, it did not land as deliberate invocation of fascist imagery the way the marching did. Right, because a lot of that, a lot of those two episodes are literally robbing children of their autonomy, which is like a thing that is really bothersome to me personally in a way that I thought was like striking in that in the sense of that imagery. Here's the thing. It's striking in the setting of Amanogawa Gakuen. But the school is demonstrably more lax in every way than most other Japanese schools. And a lot of the rules being implemented in terms of hairstyle, makeup regulations are just standard in other schools in Japan. Yeah, I mean, they are. And the other thing about that episode that I found that I found striking was when we discover that the student council president, Sugiura, is implementing all of these rules precisely because the previous president, Sayaka, had just gotten injured. I'm actually with Sayaka. What were these kids doing setting off firecrackers in front of a, a classmate right next to a staircase? She could have died. I was like, those four kids legitimately deserve to be punished. That had nothing to do with anybody else, obviously. But at the end of the day, those rules, ultimately, were fine. The the only reason why it sucks is because we like Gantaro. The only reason why it's still ultimately wrong for Sugiura to have done what he did is because he didn't actually do it out of a sense of real justice. He did it because he liked a girl. Which I also get, because high school. But, like, that's not how that works, bro. Really, if you are going to go on a roaring rampage of revenge, high school's going to be the time you do it, right? Mm -hmm. Just in terms of you are going to have comparatively less consequences and less means to do harm. I mean, he sucks some people's souls out. Yeah, 
that's going to leave some femme psychological scars, sure, but especially because this is Japan, things didn't break nearly as bad as they would have in any other country. Also, can I just say that I love how makeup's against the rules, but after your soul gets sucked out, you get that black eyeshadow under your eyes. I, I noticed that as well, because I was like, there are several characters who, if you punish them for their makeup and then decide to rob them of their own autonomy, they will look the exact same as if you, had puni- if you hadn't punished them, so maybe just don't punish them. Yeah, if you took Tomoko's soul all out, Okay, she's going to wear less jewelry now. Her makeup doesn't change. <laughs> yeah. But while all of that is happening, Meteo, our friend Ryusei, has like a brief realization just before he's about to stop Sigira from torturing some other kids. Virgo appears, breaks up the fight, dares um, Sugira to challenge Ryusei to a duel, and the duel ends up being golf, as we mentioned earlier, which is a very interesting game of golf because I think none of the moves they made were legal, but still. But after that conversation, Ryusei looks to to Virgo and goes, you're being awfully helpful in this moment. Why is that? And then Tomoko, uh, off to a side, is like, I feel something strange right now. This is interesting. Which is noteworthy because earlier in that episode, she had a similar feeling elsewhere with a guest professor at the school who just so happened to be Professor Emoto. And then the very end of that episode, as Tomoko is about to bring a moon rock that she gathered from the moon herself to Emoto as a gift, she just accidentally notices in his lab that he was the Virgo Zodiacs all along. And he realizes later that day and then just straight disappears Tomoko. Which is a lot, because where the hell does the Dark Nebula go? That was that was uh, very intense. But also, this is a very intense double cross for us, because Virgo is designed as a character to appear feminine. And part of the reason why that double cross sells is because we have no idea, like, we've never met, like, a woman other than Sonata-sensei who is a member of staff or an adult in Gamo's, like, inner circle of Zodiacs. So we have no idea who this person is for a good long while. And then we learn that Professor Emoto has been just, like, essentially benefiting from that cover for several episodes, and then he just kidnaps a teenage girl. That leads immediately into Tachibana sending a message to uh, Kengo saying, Hey, your friend is gone. I have no idea what happened. Um, things are getting particularly sticky at this point, so if you can't fight, maybe you should stay home. <laughs> and all of Gentaro's friends are immediately like, no, we're the Kamen Rider Club, so we're going to do the thing. And then Virgo shows up and starts putting holes in concrete walls right in front of Mew. And like, appears to Shun in his house while he was bathing, which is also a lot. Like, I didn't need to see teenage Justin Tomimori's back. That was very strange. The double cross, which we're about to discover even which we're about to have even more feelings about as as those episodes continue. How did you feel? Because this was this is the one thing that I definitely wanted to get your emotional response uh, to Iori. Let's rewind for a second, and I want to say that as we are dealing with the Common Rider Club being terrorized, when they tell Mew, if you're scared you can leave, I just thought that was actually incredibly shitty phrasing because she's not even scared for herself. 
She's scared because she can't defend all the people who are being threatened as collateral damage. Like, it's not about fear for herself. We have seen you scare, square up to all kinds of giant monsters with no weapon bigger than, like, her goddamn handbag. <laughs> Mm-hmm. As if she thinks she's going to just bludgeon a monster into submission with her Louis Vuitton. She's like one of those cats who thinks she's a German shepherd. But she's also deeply cognizant that, like, what's at stake here are the cheerleaders she's left behind and so forth, whom she can actually not defend. Because even if she throws herself up as a meat shield, she's going to get mowed down and the cheerleaders are going to be murdered, and that's going to be on her forever. And I feel like the club, in general, did not do a good job of acknowledging what the actual fears are in a situation like this. I'm curious whether that's a translation thing, because the subs that I would have seen didn't really make that seem hostile by any means. It did seem very much like Gen was essentially saying, I appreciate that this is how you feel, so I need you to take care of yourself. So I'm curious what he would have actually said in Japanese as a result, which I wouldn't have any way to like make sense of. But it didn't seem very hostile. So the thing about that scene is that I do feel to a certain extent Gen's face and words are telling different stories. Because facially he's coming across as resigned in his expressions, but the way he phrases himself and... This is partly because he just has a rougher way of speaking than the other characters do in general. But when he says, anyone who's scared can get out, if someone said that to me, they'd be fighting words because they'd be calling me a chicken shit. Okay, yes, fair. And it doesn't draw the distinction at all between scared for yourself versus scared for anyone else, which I Mm -hmm. thought was really vital to the calculus Mew made in that scene. But we both know that I am tremendously a Mew apologist. And you're not wrong. Especially because, like, there is a moment in that exact same scene that has a great deal more emotional weight to me. Like, it's one of the moments that I think about a lot and I think about the latter half of Forze, which is uh, Osugi coming coming into the rabbit hutch and telling everybody, just don't die. That's against the rules. And he looks so, like, broken and despondent, and then immediately after that, he goes to comfort Jake about, like, not feeling, like, up to uh, staying in the club for his own safety. And Jake is like, what hurts more is being comforted by you. And I'm like, why are you being so mean to this man who's trying to help you? No, Osuke really steps up for these last eight episodes. Like, yeah. finally... An adult in these children's lives is being a proper adult. Now, it's not the adult any of them wanted, but at least you have one now. But while more Virgo weirdness is happening, Tachibana decides he's going to finally give Gen an ultimatum, which is, your friends are in danger, but you need the you need your friends in order for the cosmic switch to even work. So let's try to figure out a way that you can get it to work without your friends. And they spend several days essentially just, like, pushing Gente's limit out in, like, the woods. And it doesn't work. And Gen is just capable of admitting, okay, here's what. My friends are what makes this work. They don't need to be here. 
but they're my friends and friendship is literally the the only power that I have um which which is why I think that it's really sweet that before he continues his training he literally spends an evening and goes to all of his friends everybody who's already said that they're too afraid to uh remain in the club and just like gives them words of encouragement and leaves and then all of his friends just come back and go okay yeah we're still in this we're still terribly afraid you've guilt tripped us but we're here yeah like they have no problem admitting we're still afraid this is still bad we can still die but you're our friends who are still here and that's when actually just like reckon with around that same time just the fact that tachibana and virgo are also the same person that emoto has been essentially double crossing both sides of this conflict at the same time by being the person who is responsible for reuse's power and being a zodiac the entire time and that his entire goal was i want Gantaro to not have to rely on his friends because I've learned that friendship is bad. I lost my friend on the moon because I was the one who actually killed your father, Kengo. It's like, whoa, whoa, this is a lot. This is a lot. So many things are happening. And then the Sagittarius Zodiac arrives and literally kills a man. Emoto is dead. Everyone is trying to fight Sagittarius and failing. Nobody knows who this is. Emoto tries to give Kengo a very secret message before he passes away and fails. And then Kengo starts getting weirdly sicker, more fragile, and is curious as to why. And that's when he discovers a weird thing about himself that we haven't gotten to yet. Because we also have to deal with the fact that we we have also met Sagittarius Zodiacs as well. Because it's actually Gamo. Gamo is a lot. Like... It's nice to see him finally getting out and being active after having spent so much of this series in his villain chair, plotting. I mean, when you are the chairman of a high school, you don't have to be around for the bad things to happen to still benefit from the bad things. But now he's become a lot more proactive because he's like, okay, we only have a few more uh, horoscopes to go. I kind of need these switches. I'm not going to tell anybody why. So he becomes a lot more hands-on. There is a scene where before we discover that uh, Gamo is the Sagittarius Zodiacs, we meet him in the cafeteria making soup. Because I guess he just needs to be present in people's lives now. There's a moment where he meets Yuki privately in a classroom and goes, Hey, you said a thing that I thought was really endearing. I just want to let you know that. And then goes over to Principal uh, Hayami and goes, um, she might be a horoscope. Look at her now. And that ends up being a whole thing because Yuki goes through a lot uh, as the Gemini Zodiacs. Well, as a version of all of the pureness in her personality that is slowly being erased by all of the darkness in her personality as a result of the Gemini Zodiacs, which is a lot and very traumatizing and I didn't enjoy it. The Gemini Zodiac's mini-arc is straight up, I'm sorry, the two scariest episodes of the whole series. There's something utterly psychologically mortifying about being robbed of your personality by the worst parts of yourself and actively forgetting who you are. And part of the reason why it hurts even more is because there is a moment where Yuki, before like she starts truly losing herself in total complaints to Gen about having forgotten something because they made a promise when they were very young and suddenly it had just slipped Gentaro's mind 
And then there comes a point later on in that double episode when Yuki forgets. And it's like, oh my god, this this is supposed to be meaningful. It doesn't even matter what the thing is at this point. Forgetting the thing that you consider emblematic of your relationship with somebody else is a kind of trauma that I don't think teenagers should have to endure. These two episodes were basically Black Swan for high schoolers. Yeah, very much. I have a lot of feelings about, like, the way that it's visually portrayed as well. That dark Yuki, aka the Gemini Zodiacs, is cherry and even more childish than Yuki is usually, and is mostly a trickster, but has no problem looking Yuki in the eye and saying, I will delete you, you will stop existing, while Yuki has, like, no choice in the matter because there's not really anything that she can do about it because she doesn't know how this is supposed to be reacted to. Cheerful malice is always scarier than just straight up being sinister, though. Yeah. That said, Dark Yuki definitely got all the fashion sense. I didn't know that was a negative trait, but apparently it is since it went into Dark Yuki. It's it's one of those weird kind of evil decisions that I actually don't like a lot. Like, why would someone's fashion sense change as a result of their personality? It's kind of weird. You know what? I'm just really, really glad that none of the costumes involved brownface. I'm just putting that out there. Especially since, like, this is Japanese TV, it could have been so much worse. I'm just glad they didn't do, like, a Creole food night. An African food night would have been really, really bad. So, uh, Yuki almost loses herself, and then Gentaro has this brilliant idea. Wait, there's something that I left at home that might be useful. And we have this brief flashback of Gentaro and Yuki as kids. Gentaro bringing, like, a listening device in the hopes that they can hear the voice of space. And then Gentaro comes to the procession that is about to cement Gemini Zodiacs as the only Yuki personality that exists. And he brings this golden box that Yuki has gifted him. And in it are two hand-drawn tickets to space. And I only want people to give me gifts that are that earnest for the rest of my life. And then... We kind of catapult very quickly to the end, because now things are happening at breakneck speed. We've learned all of the bad things. Kengo has just learned a good thing that is also very frightening, which is that Kengo is not human. Kengo learns that he is a thing called the core child, that his entire personality is literally an Astra Switch. That the reason why he keeps getting sick and can't use the power dizer or the Forze driver is because he's not human. And that he exists specifically to interact with what is essentially an alien classification called the Presenters. Who are essentially anybody out there in space who might be of a a higher intelligence and would like to interact with humans. Kengo exists specifically to re-interact with the uh, Presenters. Like his, his father's essential wish was to make someone who is capable of fulfilling the dream of establishing that there is life elsewhere in the universe and that just kind of materialized as Kengo. Which is a lot of stakes to learn that you're not human, that you have a higher purpose that you have to fulfill as a child for your dying father, and that your high school principal and high school chairman need to destroy you in order to prevent that from happening because they want it to happen to them instead. Yeah. I mean... 
what teenager hasn't at some point felt like an alien? But I mean, this is quite this is quite the alien feeling. This is learning that you are so alien that the friends that you have just spent an entire year making, you must abandon for space. Because that is your mission in life. And then your high school chairman tries to kill you. Like, meets you on the moon outside your high school hangout where you do your extracurricular activities and tries to literally shoot you dead is a lot. Kengo didn't deserve it. Hashtag Kengo didn't deserve it. Like, we learn a lot of very evil things about uh, Gamo, aka the Sagittarius of the Arts, in this scene, including but not limited to he's perfectly fine exposing teenagers to the vacuum of space if it means that it allows him to achieve his goals, which is actually really, really, like, one of the, perhaps one of the starkest kinds of antagonism I've ever seen in a piece of media ever. This person is not a good, good educator. Yeah, and I mean, again, it speaks to Forze's commitment to thinking very deeply about how untrustworthy the, the, the staff of the school is. Because Principal Hayami literally comes to them um, episodes prior and is willing to like admit, hey, I'm a Zodiacs. Gamo is a Zodiacs. Gamo is my boss. I've been literally working against you this entire school year. But I've changed now. I'm trying to prevent these things from happening. Psych. I'm only here so this one girl will become a Zodiacs as well. And my plan worked because you're all suckers for authority. I wanted everybody to drop out of school at that point. He had me in the first half, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, he is very convincing. In part because he's willing to actually get beat up. Like, that was the reason why I was sold. The fact that he's actually sorely defeated by every other Zodiac that confronts him during that entire, like, like few days that this uh, scene is taking place. You'd imagine that he could have pulled that plan without getting beat up, but you'd also imagine that he went to Leo and went, okay, we're going to do this thing, you don't really have to hit me. And Leo is like, no, I'm going to hit you, because I like hitting you. See, I was sold on it because I'm deeply shallow, and I like him hot, remorseful, and getting the shit kicked out of him. That's my type. I mean, that's particularly telling. Like, I have a lot of feelings about the actor who plays Hayami because Kosei Amano has been in a Kamen Rider series before. And in that Kamen Rider series, Kamen Rider Blade, he already has a reputation for being an asshole. His character in that series literally watches the protagonist be assaulted by an enemy and just, like, stares at the fight intently the entire time while while the hero is calling out to him for help. So, like... A part of me was like, I shouldn't trust this person because I know how this goes. And then I was like, no, this is a different show, Brandon. This is not Kamen Rider Blade. This is a different character. You can believe him. He's actually remorseful. He's actually in physical pain. Nope. (laughs) You did it to me again. Thank you very much. So now he's villain coded and every show you see him in after this, you will suspect him even if he's the protagonist is what you're telling me. Probably, yes, Kosei Amano has been ruined for me because of Kamen Rider. (laughs) But, like, what's also telling, and I guess, like, I still have a lot of very strong emotional, uh, a very strong emotional connection to Hayami as a character, because he still gives his life in the episode. When they try to defeat uh, Sagittarius, he throws himself in the way of the attack, 
and dies. Darth admires the devotion, even if it's not devotion to anything good. <laughs> right? But, like, it's coded in that moment. Very interestingly, after Emoto's death, this moment is coded as, I am giving my life to you not simply because I am devoted to you, but because I want you to value me and my efforts. And Gamo's like, thank you for being disposable. And that's when I hated Gamo. That's what I hated him the most. And then he and then he tried to kill children. Like, that's how bad that is. Can we talk about the attack on the rabbit hutch? I'd like to, because that's not how space works. It really, really isn't. But I also just want to make sure we've all noticed that Osugi got to Mew and protected her before Shun did. Oh my god, that's true. I, I like that the stakes were ramped up in that way. I like that, for instance... The Kamen Rider Club leave the rabbit hut with only the Forze driver, the charred remains of their banner, and their the clothes on their backs. I think they literally lose all of their school books in that uh, attack. But, like, they're on the moon. When you <laughs> expose, like, a structure that is in space to spatial pressure, like, everybody in there was just supposed to... Die of explosive decompression in a matter of seconds. But instead, it's like a plane where they're just like being sucked out of the window by by increased pressure. Like it's just like a normal amount of air pressure, which it isn't. It's like the vacuum of space itself. But we allow it because we don't want these children to die. And then we get to Kengo's emotional letter. Which, mm, it felt a lot. I felt a lot. I resented a little that it was making me feel so many things because Kengo definitely ha- expressed some opinions in that letter that I don't think were strictly accurate. <laughs> wow, he's allowed to be nice to his friends. It really depends on what. Some of the things he said were nice and helpful to that person. Some of the things he said were nice to the people they were directed at and directly unhelpful to other people. But like, he has friends now. He must be nice to them. At the point where he wrote that he thought that Shun was the only person in the world worthy of Mew. Let's see, my notes for that say, Kengo, read the room. It's a bad ship. Oh my god! We don't, we don't like the OTP? Okay, cool. But, like, I like the, I like the letter in part because, like, it isn't actually the first time that Kengo has actually established that he is friends with these people. But it's the first time that he's established that he values what they can potentially give to him as much as he values what he's giving to them for free, if that makes sense. Like, this moment and the moment when uh, he brings Gentaro back to life are the only two moments that he genuinely establishes his friendship for anyone. But this time, it's his life on the line. And the first thing that he does is let the people that he cares about know that... Like, he knows things about them and values those things separate from what he can do for them or their role in this work that he's doing, which I thought was actually kind of earnest, more so than trying to save Gantara's life. Well, that's because this leaves tangible proof that they can all go back to. Previously, whenever we've had a friendship moment, it's been almost entirely verbal. Or it's been like, okay, we had a hug. Or the handshake, like the like the the one true symbol of friendship, which I definitely want to uh, get to because immediately after reading the letter, all of these kids decide, you know what? 
Kango is right because Kango said in the letter that we need to defeat Gamo, but we don't need to hate him. And they decide the best way to do that is a combat graduation speech, which is perhaps the most high school thing that you could possibly do. Forze fighting Gamo in the auditorium while people whose lives are at stake, people who have literally been physically threatened by Gamo, are on stage telling him how much of how how impressed they are by the work that he's done as a chairman and how they aren't actually mad at him and still want the best for him and for the school. Yeah, he had really bad and evil motives, but on the way to trying to work through those bad and evil motives, he did have some good side effects on people's lives. And yeah. I appreciate that the fullness of that experience is represented here. Yeah, the soup was good. We got to experience space. I guess the school wasn't so bad after all, which is really endearing because it gives Genter the opportunity to befriend Gamo, and Gamo takes it. I really enjoyed the deeply bewildered expression upon Gamo's face when Gen inflicts the handshake upon him. It's, like, very cute. And, like, I like the fact that that's uh, also the episode where we established that Gamo's intention, like, wasn't purely evil. He just wanted to experience space, just like all of these other kids. And then it got warped by all of these other experiences. But, like, ultimately, he just likes space just as much as all of these other characters do. And when he learns that he can value that without being cruel to children, he brings Kengo back to life with the last of his literal energy. I'm glad we got Kengo back, but I am actually not okay with Gamal's death because I think this was a case of using dying as a stand-in for actual redemption. Like, the ending I got and the ending I wanted are different. I mean, I wanted him to live as well, but I also feel like there is like a disconnect somewhere. I feel like there is a moral conflict that someone can have. I didn't necessarily have it. Between redeeming a character for a kind of violence, however cruel, except when that violence is against children. I personally wanted him to, wanted to see him redeemed because I also wanted the narrative to be about an adult learning that your aspirations for children can be wholesome and responsible and that you can fix the errors that you've made in that irresponsibility and that uh, violence by committing yourself to do that work more progressively. But I also feel like when you've tried to kill children in space... People won't trust you with that capacity. Yes, fair, but my ideal final scene of the series and implied continuation is Gen just walking into this guy's office every day and leaning against his desk and being like, Hey Gramps, how's it going? You better not be evil today. And then Gamal goes and teaches a class and is a functional and nurturing thing leader towards children. And, you know, Gen drops by and checks up on him, and eventually Gen's probably going to get a job teaching PE here and become the great teacher Onizuka of Amanogawa. Like, that is how the series ends in my heart, with Gamo learning to be a better person and actually delivering on this concept of making friends with Gen. I find it very interesting that you have that idea. So, one of the things I want to ask you, now that we've gotten to the end of Forze, I want to ask two questions, which are, 
what are your standout ships in uh, this series? Because I know that you have them. And what do you think that these students do when they graduate? What do you think is the future of the members of the Cavern Rider Club? So I'm actually going to call back to the end of the Dark Yuki arc, when Yuki gives everyone tickets to space. We should note that Tomoko and Yusei get a couple's ticket to space. You know who doesn't? Mew and Shun get Yay! solo tickets to space. Because we probably shouldn't put them in the shuttle together. It's going to be awkward. Yeah, you'd imagine. You know, my opinion with Mew and Shun, even though they're the OTP of the series, like, I definitely winced when that proposal happened in the end credits, because we've all had that one relationship where a guy's like, I would die for you, and you're like, please don't, please don't, please just stop. And this very much feels like that relationship to me. There is a condition under which I think it works. Mm-hmm. But basically, the only way that Mew and Shun works for me is if she turns into a high-powered business businesswoman and he's the house husband, but he needs to first go no contact with his dad and get therapy for all his internalized trauma about manliness before that happens. So I support Shun getting about three years of psychotherapy, and then let's try this relationship and see how it goes. You're not wrong. After he gets therapy, he's going to be a great dad, I think. I do want to mention that it is actually, like, canon that even though there is a period after the series, just before one of the movies, when they are not dating, they are, as of the end of that movie, still uh, in a committed relationship. I guess we'll never know whether it went well or poorly for them, but I have faith in them at least. But I just want to talk very uh, quickly about my OTP. Let's hear it. Ryusei and Tomoko deserve each other. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And like, part of the reason why I'm like really endeared by the fact that I got a double ticket to space is because I like the fact that folks noticed that they were getting close because it wasn't like it wasn't as overt as you would expect it to have been, but it wasn't unnoticeable. And I also think that it's really cool that they're still in a committed relationship even when Ryusei becomes a spy. Because it's established in one of the movies that he essentially becomes, like, a black ops agent with, like, clandestine organization that is trying to take down Foundation X. Okay, no, I love this. And let's see. She definitely goes into fortune-telling professionally. She makes bank doing it, like... She'll have a radio show and an online presence, probably like a super aesthetic Insta. And I bet while he's away on his missions, she totally uses her tarot cards to keep up on where he is and make sure he's okay. That's actually probably not the case. Do you know what Tomoko does for a living at the, at the end of the series? She becomes a novelist. That is also good. Yeah, she writes a book. Which is rad. And, like, it's established that the book is doing very well. And, like, she's very well off as a result. She's making writer money. And her kung fu boyfriend. (laughs) Oh, no! Not us writer money. She's making J.K. Rowling money. She's making, like, she's making Stephen King money. And meanwhile, her kung fu boyfriend is traveling Europe, getting in fights with supervillains all by himself. But, like, it is, like, a very standout decision. I graduated and now I'm just going to 
spend the rest of my life just traveling the world and getting in fights because it's the only thing that I really know how to do. Uh, what's particularly noteworthy is we have no idea what happens to Jake. He seems like he would be the guy who is living with a couple roommates and kind of scraping together a few different part-time gigs. Not because he can't get a job, but more because he's unwilling to commit the way that a real job requires. Real job by the Japanese sense of seishain, where you sign a contract and you're there almost for life. I know this is going to sound really super weird to everybody in every other country. Although we have, like, a growing trend towards hell capitalism, there are still a lot of old-fashioned companies over here where you can sign your contract because you have an actual contract and there are labor laws and unions to protect you, and then you can reasonably expect to spend, like, 30 years there. They'll recruit you straight out of high school and or college and keep you until you retire. But I think Jake would feel a lot of resistance to being a company employee because of the long-term commitment it implies. And he's going to be the guy who bounces between a few different, like, convenience store, record store, restaurant, hospitality-adjacent kind of gigs. Because it's easier to get in and out of those. And... He probably builds some sort of side hustle on his own. I, I'm sure he does do something that I'm just genuinely forgetting and can't find without having watched the movie again. But I'm sure like it's some entertainment thing that is obviously his path without ever going to, into music again because he's made up his mind, which would suck. I should also mention that Shun becomes a professional football player because obviously. Oh no. And Mew becomes a model because obviously. But she's so good at logistics and organization. Yeah. And like, we've kind of seen in the series, she gets grouchy when she's not getting intellectual stimulation. She'd be so bored. (laughs) This is true. I imagine that she's very bossy as a result. But we need to see that movie and like, I need to refresh my memory of that movie before I can like, say definitively like, whether her personality has changed in that result. But, as it stands, this is the finale of Kamen Rider Forze. We have watched all 48 episodes, we have had a lot of feelings. Too many feelings for us to even capture in this episode, even. Ultimately, how did you feel about the series as a whole? It's very sweet. Like, it was nice to be in this space where people love each other and care about each other and there's a reasonable promise of a happy ending. That said, there are a lot of points at which I feel that the writer's room did not fully sit with the implications of a lot of what they were doing. So there was a surprising amount of just, like, fridge horror in this series for me. I'd feel good about something in the moment, and then I'd walk away and go like, Oh! Oh, the implications of that are actually really terrible! Ultimately, Forza is one of my favorites, in part because I just like that there is a series where, like, part of the narrative focus is that the desires and aspirations and hopes and fears of teenagers are real and valid. It's not about convincing them to, like ignore those things or 
become stoic in the face of those things, but to like accept the fact that sometimes people are bad. <laughs> and sometimes your uh, experience of teenage life is actually very fraught. But ultimately, being honest about that and having a circle of friends who you can trust to help you work your way through that is more responsible than just giving in to the whims of adults because they say they have your best interests at heart because sometimes they don't. And I think that as a whole, that idea is a valuable idea for a Kamen Rider series, at least for this one. So with that, at some point we're going to have to find something else to watch. So very soon, I guess we're going to have to ask folks if they have any ideas about something that we want to see. I know that there are some things that you are eager to uh, start watching, Iori. So perhaps we might leave it up to a poll if you'd like to do that. Yes. Because I definitely have some classic picks that we can work on if you're in favor of magic or vampires or uh, some other similar weirdness. So we will put a poll together. But... Until next time, be transformed and stay righteous. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>